0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. It's my privilege to be sharing with you what I feel God has been putting on my heart since um, several weeks, right? And so how many of you, just quick check, were at at least a portion of the Justice Conference here and there, yeah, and, yeah, some of you. And then the rest of you, you kind of heard a bit about it here and there. And then some of us, we heard Edison and Cass who came and shared that Sunday after, right? And uh, it, was, it was great also to just be reminded of uh, Romans 12, actually, last week when we just came back. So Matt and I, after the conference, we, soon after, we flew over to South Africa for A holiday and uh, so we just came back last saturday and then we caught pastor chip ingram who was speaking here last sunday and uh it's 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 been a a a great visit so i'll just share like a tad bit uh from that trip uh soon right so besides the international orphan sunday which i didn't know about but uh, i was so glad that uh pd led in prayer for that today is the fact that um Going on that South Africa trip for, for us, for me at least, right, because we are slowly debriefing our trip, you know, some parts are still just fresh and coming out, was how it almost felt like some of it or elements of it was like a continuation from some of the things that God was stirring even during the Justice Conference, right? And so um, I don't know how many of you have been uh, there, but uh, it's, it's a place that has such a history, right? Um, Because of the apartheid. And so we got to visit some significant places. And I just wanted to show you, starting on a light note, I just wanted to show you this significant street that we visited um, called Vila Kazi Street, where there was this uh, monument. How many of you have seen this photo before? Here, maybe not. Okay. So this photo, uh, and I love photos that tell stories, that capture. Uh, a significant moment, and this photo is one of the most or the most uh, famous photo that has to do with uh, the protest that took place near the home of uh, Nelson Mandela. And uh, before we landed, uh, I was just reading an article because, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'm a bit type A, and so sometimes I like, read up and, and you know, Google and research whatever before I land a place that I'm traveling to. So I was reading up and and this photo, someone posted and talked about how it is the photo that changed the history of South Africa. And so uh, this uh, photo shows this boy carrying uh, a young boy called Hector Peterson. And uh, Hector Peterson was one of many students who were shot in a peace protest um, when a bunch of students gathered to protest uh, uh, the use of Africans uh, in their school, right? And so this photo changed the course of their struggle against apartheid in South Africa because um, this journalist shared this and across the world news headlines and so there, was, there were people from various nations coming alongside their struggle, right? And um, so this street, when we were walking down there, um, it was just really intense. The whole street. Um, There's like, um, so there's Nelson's house. I mean, we're on first name basis. Uh, Mandela's house, sorry. Mandela's house and then further just a a street down is Desmond Tutu's house. Right? If you know Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And then this street is where so many significant things happened. And when we visited Mandela's house, I took a photo of this uh, quote that spoke to me. There's no serious or responsible leader, gathering, or organization of the African people has ever accepted segregation, separation, or the partition of this country in any shape or form. Um, and I thought about this for a while. What does it mean? Uh, uh, there, there's, there's so much that you can unpack from there, right? And so this morning, I'm not talking about South Africa, but I'm just sharing how Uh, you know, I felt really just moved by the different things that we experienced when we were there. Of course, there was a safari, and then, you know, there were other things. But this portion of our trip um, really also added to the burden that I felt what God wanted me to share. Okay, so, yeah. So one of the things that struck me was how important it is to be aware of the differences in worldview, right? Because the struggle what um, Mandela and his people struggle with was the the issue of well ethnicity right race uh, amongst many things, segregation and um, exclusion, right not being able to uh, uh, embrace differences and I remember, and I think only maybe two or three people here would know this place i 'm going about to mention so i 'm from Kota Kinabalu, and there is a mall there called Centerpoint. Yeah, yeah, I know. So I'm looking at Darlene, and she goes, yeah, Centerpoint. So um, I, after my, my uh, secondary school major exam, I went to work there for three months uh, in a store called Levi's, okay? Yes, I was a Levi's store uh, sales girl, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it was so fun, okay, it's just three months, but so fun, right? Um, and one of the things, you may think I'm weird, uh, and you, you need to, yeah, you can dig more out of me whenever we meet for coffee or whenever, is that um, being meeting people from very different backgrounds and cultures really excites me. It's like I'm generally an introvert, but when I get to travel, sometimes if alone or with Matt, I would love to strike up conversation with random people. I have no idea why but it just brings a lot of joy when I meet people who are very different from me. And so when I was working there for three months, the owner was Chinese so I didn't talk a lot with him. Yeah, yeah you know, No, just kidding, just kidding, that's so bad. But, because he's not there, okay. But most of us, the rest of the staff would be there. And there would be two, so there are two Filipinas And there's one Indonesian girl um, who was working together there. And then there was another guy who was also Indonesian. So we would hang out in the back room and have lunch. And those conversations were great. Where I got to hear more, know about their family, and and all that stuff. So that was a pivotal three months. Because from there, a lot of what I thought I knew, or what I understood being taught about immigrants or, or people who are in Malay right? to our country, or to Sabah, was challenged, right? And my worldview uh, was challenged. My understanding of cultures were challenged. And then there was also many moments in my life where this continues to be, and I cherish those moments. And worldviews, guys, shape our experiences, the way we uh, take away from them, and then which in turn then also continue to shape our views, right? And so it's something that is of value to us as a family to want to expose um, our kids to different things. I was so happy and so thankful to the Gush teachers for bringing the kids to Tai Kwan. Uh, you know, and, and the kids loved it. They had such a great experience. And even then, like, even if there are many moments, maybe it's not like a... Hooray uh, experience. But these are still teaching moments because we teach them from young, right? i taking time to talk about that because I'm just kind of introducing um, what I'm about to share today. So we're talking about In the Name of Love and Justice today and uh, hopefully next Sunday too. Right? So today and next Sunday. And today we're focusing on neighbor love. How this speaks to our faith, our walk as disciples, our approach to different values and lifestyles of ourselves, people around us, and and how we participate with the culture in which we are in, right, our world, how we influence or are influenced by, how we can meaningfully engage, participate, and not just um, be shaped by our world, right, but we are called to be a voice, uh, um, be bringers of redemption, right? And we participate in our world in that way. And so this is really important as we chew on this. And we need to ask God to speak deep into some of the ways that we believe, uh, what, what we believe, uh, the way we view the world, each other, and people who are not uh, in our vicinity, those that are uh, usually outside of our circles, those that we usually don't think about hanging out with, um, those we don't naturally feel an affinity with, right? And that's, I think I think you and I, we we understand that at the basic level, but I hope that what I'll share today will give some insight that God will burn within your heart, that there are burdens inside that are God-given. And I don't think that that feeling of fun and joy that I feel when I get to know people who are different, comes from me. And so for many of you, um, it's something that you are still exploring, right? But in all of us, there is a desire somehow to connect and to make sense and see our faith, uh, see other people make sense of their faith and their belief in God as well, right? So we pray that um, this morning, God, we just pray that you will move and and, and shift things around in the home of our hearts. We pray that you would um, alter not just what we see, but what we sense and what we carry in our spirits. We pray that your scripture, uh, even as we've heard a couple of Sundays ago, would burn uh, in our hearts and transform us, would cause us to be compelled by you, our knowledge of you will transform us. That is not just words that we're reading and we're listening to today, but this is for life and for people's lives. And so we pray that as we look into your word, you speak deep to each of us so that we will respond in faith and respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're looking at Luke 10 today, and it's not up on the screen because I would love for you to flip and scroll there. If you can, Luke 10, this entire passage is likely a very familiar one, right? Whatever version you're looking at, we're just going to go through, and most of the versions I checked through are pretty similar. There are no major differences to highlight. So um, I'm going to use the message version, so I'll read from there. You can follow along in whatever, okay? 25, Luke 10. Just then a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? He answered, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus, do it and you live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road. But when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite religious man showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. What do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly, the religion scholar responded. Jesus said, and do the same now if you read this passage maybe two or three times and you kind of you know pay full attention and not multitasking or anything perhaps you will find that there is two there are two sets of dialogue so I'll just flash it out for you right not a table okay this time but two sets of dialogue very interesting dialogue Notice, look deeper into the two questions that this expert of the law came and and brought to Jesus. He says, what do I need to do to get eternal life, right? And in the typical Jesus fashion that I love, he asks back, what's written in the law? Don't you love questions? No, I, I'm, I'm not being sarcastic. I think that, right, the, the, the whole thing about education in life is learning to ask the right questions, right? Good questions. So Jesus has it down. Pat, what's written in the law? But this guy, he doesn't skip a beat. I mean, give it to him. I'm impressed. I don't know if I would have, like, instantly have an answer on the tip of my tongue, but he answered this A-plus answer, okay? So this does not... This did not stump him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind, all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus says, great, you got it. Do it and you'll live. Now, if you're that guy, what would you be thinking? Maybe. Yeah, okay. I am doing it. Maybe he's thinking that. I don't know. But then he goes on to ask. And the verse, interestingly, tells you, what's he doing? He's looking for a loophole. Or in the ESV version, he's try- so trying to de- justify himself. He then asks Jesus, how would you define neighbor? Right? And what did Jesus do again? He tells a story, ends it by asking a question. Tells the story of the good Sam good Samaritan. And then he says, which of these three became a neighbor? Or in some version, which of them proved to be a neighbor to this guy who was injured? And the guy, instead of saying the Samaritan or, you know, the third guy, he says the one that treated him kindly, right? And then Jesus says again, go and do it. Okay? Interesting. Now Who's this guy? So he's a law expert. He knows the Torah very well, okay, presumably. He must have. And he knows that the whole law can be summed up with love the Lord your God, yada, yada, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? He knows that much. Um, And and, and when Jesus says, do it and you live, there's a deeper meaning, okay? Um, But the second dialogue, you begin to see this pattern because this guy, you can feel almost that his stance is very individualistic. He's, he's basically, uh, he's not being other-centered as opposed to the way that Jesus was trying to steer him. right? His question was coming from a place where how can I achieve this for myself? right? How can I attain eternal life? And you know, there are conversations like that when, when you, you have a friend or someone that you're meeting, you know that The person, if you answer the question straight up, it doesn't change the heart issue. See what I mean? Because it's an issue of his heart. It is a motivation issue. And so Jesus could have responded didactically and just given an answer, or, you know, equally profound perhaps. But he didn't. He responded in a way that would have to deal with his heart. And we'll look at that uh, uh, a bit more later. But you find that oftentimes, because of human nature, we have this bent. So our two kids, they're from, from, well, very soon, okay? And I won't name which one, because actually, they kind of take turns doing it, okay? <laughs> Don't tell them uh, that I told you, okay? <laughs> uh, maybe, well, yeah. If you tell them, just tell me. Uh, uh. <laughs> so... The kids, from being really young, have learned that there are certain things that you do uh, when mommy doesn't expect it or when she is expecting it. You do it, you'll be in mommy's good books, okay? Uh, And they're just six and four, right? So they'll do that, and then I'll be like, oh, hey, great, good job, well done. Wow, I didn't even expect it, so wonderful. Then they smile, very happy, pleased with themselves. And then the kid will come. I said, the kid, see, no name. And the kid will come and then say, Mommy, since I did that, can I have a chocolate bar now? Right? Because they learned that the last time, if they did it, they got a chocolate bar, right? <laughs> and so I realized really quickly that Uh, A lot of parenting is to teach issues of the heart, right? Motivation. And a lot of times in our wanting to discipline and teach values, we as humans will find all kinds of ways to what we call fence the law. We will find all kinds of ways to be in God's good books and not sin and still be okay with God. Does that make sense? And so this guy, and he's not the only one, because if you're sitting there and like, yeah, I don't know why these teachers of the law are like that. You and I do it too. We'll just find different ways to get by where we're good enough, but we're not dealing with the issue of our heart or our motivation. And so loophole, when we're looking for it, you can find it, right? And so we ensure we adhere to it, insofar that we do not transgress. But so that's why Jesus says, because his motivation was, I do, then I get. What do I need to do? Then I get eternal life. Then Jesus says, well, what what does the law say? The law says this, love the Lord, love your neighbor. Okay, do it and you live. Basically, it's, how is that? Is that going well for you? Are you able to do that? Jesus says, if you can, do it, and you live. But the fact is, cannot, right? We can't. And so I'm so thankful that the guy went and asked the second question, which led us to this amazing story, which was going very well, by the way, when Jesus was talking about this man who got injured, robbed, left half-dead by the roadside. Until he came to the word Samaritan. Ah. Crowd shocker. Okay. Now this one, if you were standing by listening all the the whole time, the story is going really well. Until Jesus says the Samaritan, okay? Because they don't get along. Jews and Samaritans are are like R I and A C times 10, okay? That's what I'm like, oh, am I? Sorry. (laughs) You all take it outside. But I've been told that there is rivalry, okay, between some schools, uh, like the ones I mentioned. Example, hypothetically. But times that, maybe a hundred, is the animosity that you feel with Jews and Samaritans at the time, right? And so for that to be thrown in, Jesus was not saying it casually. He knew what feathers he was ruffling, right? And he has intentionally gone out of his way in John 4 to sit by a well and talk to a woman who was a Samaritan. So Jesus is out looking for the lost, right? Not just for the Jews. So we ask ourselves a question, hmm, why? Okay, I bring you to a couple of verses in the Torah, and then we'll talk a bit more of Jesus. From the Torah, okay, this is where the expert of the law would have drawn his responses to Jesus when Jesus asked what's written in the law. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Leviticus 19.18, Checks out. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So from here, it would seem that your neighbor is among your own people, right? Among your, your own sons, the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But take a closer look in the same passage, Leviticus 19, the next verse, though, 34. 33 to 34, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Now, this passage will tell you, so it's not just one of your own, but it's one of uh, those that were not one of your own, but is traveling with you. Sojourn, like a, a foreigner living amongst you, an alien in the land, who is residing with you. Right, so it broadens that definition of neighbor a bit more, and then interestingly, in the same verse that P. D. read to us, Deuteronomy ten eighteen, it says this: He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So the premise is, if you remember, you were also a foreigner when you were in exile, when you were in Egypt. And therefore, treat foreigners, treat the sojourners as you would yourself. So how do we define neighbor? Jesus came to break barriers that exclude others. There were two apples hanging up on a tree. This is a profound parable, okay? Or take it as such two apples hanging on a tree, looking down at the world, and one apple said to the other, you know, look at those humans. They can't get along, fighting all the time, having wars, robbing each other. One day, only we apples will be left. Then, we will rule the world. Then silence, then the other apple said, Which of us? The reds or the greens? I haven't had time this week to tell Ezra this story when I saw it. But at some point I will because he loves green apples. He discriminates against red apples. But I thought that illustrates really well how sometimes we don't expect it, but other people will have something to say about how we're different from them. And exclude, we just have this tendency to do that, right? We have a compelling pull to uh, see who is excluded and, and who's not, right? Whether it's green apple, red apple, how we deal with so many things in life, we do have lines, right? We draw lines and sometimes when it goes really bad, we decide to eliminate, purge, right? That's so much in human history that has happened. Uh, sometimes the other way we deal with it is we try and assimilate so that you have to become just like me. Or we dominate, right? Or we abandon. We turn uh, aside. We do not see you. These are the different ways that we've coped. And uh, this is something that I drew from Miroslav Wolf, who recently came uh, and did a forum here. Uh, he's one of the theologians that really uh, wrote out of a broken place he's a Croatian guy who uh, is, is doing public theology now and he wrote this out of his experience with the, the war in Yugoslavia in the 1990s Miroslav Wolf Embrace and Exclusion and Embrace is the book but Jesus came to break barriers to exclude others and often we don't realize that this is talking about us we assume that others is the other person but hey We were on the other side, Jesus came and reconciled us to God. Right? Ephesians 2 remind us this, Should we ever forget? Remember you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Right? Mm-hmm. You are that other. I am that other. Right? And, and, and even as Christmas is approaching, we're reminded how Jesus came in the flesh to dwell among us. Because he wants to reconcile humanity to God. And at one point, you who were once dead in your transgressions, God came and showed mercy and rescued us from the pit, right? We're not even half dead like that injured man. We were dead in our sins, but Jesus reconciled you and I. And Jesus came to break barriers because it excludes us from fellowship with God. And now from this parable, we are, we're learning that the one who shows mercy is the one who proves to be the true neighbor. Wanting to define who is in the category of neighbor is like defining who deserves to be shown grace, who deserves to be shown mercy, isn't it? And that's the great reversal in the way Jesus spoke to this guy. It's a parable, it may be fictional, but there is profound truth in there, right? Look at the way he's cornering the guy, right? Not in a hostile way, uh, but he wanted him to be affected with his heart issue, right? If you look at the passage again, uh, and you scroll through, you realize that Jesus reversed the question, Right? So the guy was asking, how would you define neighbor? And then Jesus goes, tells his story, and then asks, so who was the neighbor? Who was the neighbor to the guy? He made him say what he would never say, that the Samaritan is the good guy in this story. He is the hero in this parable. Under any circumstance, any self-respecting Jew would not have said that or risk." Excommunication or something. He put it in such a way that now, if I no, you know, maybe if that guy came and spoke to us, okay, uh, ask me that question. I may have tried to think up some story and, ah, uh, okay, who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Let me think. Let me tell you a story, okay? And and the story is this: there was an injured man, and then a guy came along, walked. The other way didn't help, and then a woman came along, walked the other way also, didn't help. But then you came along. You're the guy, okay? You're the hero. You're the Jew. You came along, and and then you decide anybody, okay, even your enemy, the Samaritan, can be your neighbor if he or she is in need, right? We tell that story, and you be like, we naturally would think he would naturally relate himself as the hero in the story. I am in the superior position. I would help. Or maybe the other extreme is the response. Say, leave him to die. I'll finish him off with my horse. Okay? Maybe then. I don't know. We don't know, okay? But so if you tell that story, if he doesn't take that trajectory, if he takes the trajectory off, okay, um, I can see why you you would uh, uh, t- tell me that story so that I can see, oh, As long as someone is in need, even if it is an enemy, even if it's those Samaritans, okay, can help. Then he can go back and think about how would I define neighbor. But the impact is not like that. Jesus reversed it. He told it in a sense that in a way that he has no choice but to identify himself as the one who needs help. Because there's no way that a Jew would say, oh, I'm that Samaritan. No, right? Because they don't like each other. They don't have dealings with each other. So from the way that the story progresses, he has no choice. This religious scholar has no choice but to be cornered in. Oh, I'm that man. Now, if you are lying on the side of the street and a priest passes you by, one of your own, and a Levite passes you by, One of your own. At that point, this third person comes. You don't care he's what person. Help me, right? You don't even care whether you're a Samaritan or not. Or you're the least person that I would ever ask for help from. At that point, what do you want that person to do for you? Help you, right? Put yourself in that position. Help me, please. Don't pass me by. And that's what Jesus made him recognize. Now if you can be lying on the ground half dead and expect someone you detest, like a Samaritan to help you, would you not do the same if it was reversed? How can you possibly insist on being treated any other way? And that's the way Jesus was trying to speak to him and deal with his heart issue. That, that only by this response he recognizes that his definition of neighbor is too restrictive and meritocratic. It is too dependent on our boundaries, our worldview, who deserves and who does not. But Jesus spoke into that and says, look, the one who showed compassion is the one who proved to be the neighbor. Joe Green, uh, in one of our our books that we uh, learned about the Gospel of Luke, he says this, by leaving aside the identity of the wounded man and portraying the Samaritan traveler as one who performs the law consistent with the heart of God, Jesus nullifies the worldview that asks these kind of questions. Who is my neighbor? And we were having dinner on Friday night with a couple of you guys. And... um, in this couple's house and we were just casually talking and they didn't really know what I was preaching about today. Um, but they were, they were talking about how in East Coast Park, uh, they saw how someone fell and it was the migrant workers who first went to help them up. Little things like that. In the bus, you know, you would see sometimes that the person you didn't expect to give up their seat, they are the ones who do. And I think, you know, regardless, I'm not harping on a particular aspect of our prejudices here, but I'm just saying that, hey, there are ways that we have not examined ourselves. The one who shows mercy. And so that's why I decided to phrase my next point this way. We must take pains to examine our neighbor love. Take pains. It's not convenient, it's not comfortable but we take pains to examine because this is Jesus' posture towards us. How can we insist any other way? Hosea 6.6 writes this, and Jesus quotes this later when he was questioned by experts of the law. Hosea 6. For I desire steadfast love, which is mercy in this context, and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so, when he, Jesus is not so much just about wanting to include everybody, as much as he's also challenging those who prefer to exclude others on the basis of deserving, being worthy of. When we are not careful to examine, Our inclination to exclude, we become church that is not church, that is not the mature and spotless bride that God is awaiting. And so, how do we take pains to examine ourselves, our hearts, our posture? If when, when we believe one thing, or we say we believe one thing, but we turn around and do something different, you and I, we can be guilty of this all the time. Do we take pain to examine ourselves? I'm reminded of you know, the stories that Cassandra shared from her Justice Rising experiences, of just reaching out to those who are not deserving, of having dinner with army generals and officers and speaking to them about love and just life. Think about if you know the story of Gandhi, how he was studying the Gospels and he became very... Uh, intrigued and curious about Jesus, and he wanted to get to know Jesus, and he wanted to go to a church and find out if he wants to be a Christian. And he was at the threshold, literally, when he walked to a church in Calcutta, and he says, hey, "You know what? I want to learn about this Jesus." But he was he, he was drawn because of his uh, need at that time. He struggled with the caste system in India, and so he steps into this, this church and says, "I want to get to know this Jesus." but at the door he was stopped by the ushers who said you're not uh, sorry we can't let you in this is for the high caste Indians only and the whites he turned away from the church and he thought to himself if there is a caste system in Christianity also I don't want a part of this that's his experience you know one of the things that we know that something is true And we learned this in apologetics is three qualifiers, right, for what is true. One is when there is logical consistency of what is being presented, right, of the Christian faith. And I think Gandhi found. in in his own way, logical consistency with the, the methods and approach and the posture of Jesus. And the second thing is, there was empirical adequacy from what he observed about Jesus' lifestyle, his words, his teachings. This is not just a normal teacher. There is empirical adequacy. There is enough evidence to show that this is consistent and it makes sense and it is good and it's valid. But came the third one, the third qualifier, the church failed, where there is no experiential relevance to his experience, when he expected that if I would embrace this faith, there is something of value here that would speak into my struggle in my nation or with my people. But he did not have that experiential relevance. He did not. And we failed the truth of Jesus because as a church, we have not taken pains to examine ourselves. And in our subconscious, there are innate biases. These are byproducts. and If we're not careful, we are not deliberately exposing ourselves and, and deliberately exposing our children, our next generation to the biases and, and to what God sees instead of what the world sees we will be so shaped we will be whether you like it or not most of us think I'm not racist I don't have a problem with these people I don't have a problem with this group of people but when we are not intentionally addressing it and stepping out of what's comfortable to examine ourselves we will be shaped and it will shape our generations what about the church How do we treat people who are different from you and I? Regardless of their faith, ethnicity, where they come from, status, level of education, regardless. How do we treat them? Matthew 9, 9 to 13 is when Jesus quotes this. He was sitting with the tax collectors, the sinners, then the Pharisees came. Why does your teacher eat with them? Why does he eat and drink and, and all that with these guys? But Jesus says, those who are well don't need a doctor. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. Wow, Jiala, if teacher says that to you, you go and learn what this means. Hey, you've been, how long have you known me? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call you because you're righteous. I came because you were dead in your sins. And that's what I did for you. How can we insist on any other way when God says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself? God, we just pray that you speak to us. We just pray that you move, Father God, the things that hinder us from being able to respond, Father, to your grace the way we, we should. And we want to know your affection. And we want to be converted by your grace over and over again so that we examine our hearts, so that we truly carry a love for people, for our city, for the people that we meet in our lives. All these because you saved us. Jesus, you are the great Samaritan, in that sense, right? We were fallen, we were left to dead. But mercy paid for us. Mercy, and I don't mean just Jesus gave mercy. Jesus is mercy. He is love. He is justice. He is grace. He paid for me. And Jesus paid for you. What is our faith response? And Pastor Chip said, the Romans 12 life is not a a, a moral code for relationships. It is a faith response to what God has done for us. What is our faith response for what God has done for you and I? God, would you convert your church over and over again? That we will ever see ourselves as the one lying in need of you. And God, we pray that Lord, where there needs to be heart change, change us. And this morning, I call um, two kinds of you, as I was praying for this, God, how do you want me to end? And one uh, group. or person, I don't know. You may want to respond because as you're hearing, God is putting a burden in your heart for a particular um, need. Or He's been putting, but you've been putting off. Okay? And so God's been putting a burden in your heart for a particular need or a ministry or a people. And um, you're just you just want to respond to God. Whatever your response is, you just want to have a time of response to God, then that's you, okay? So that's one, first group. A second group of us, um, as we have the worship band up, is this. God's convicting your heart right now about a particular person um, that you may feel, uh, this morning at least, God's convicting that you have a bias towards or it could be a group of people, I don't know, okay? But God is convicting you about that, and you also just want to respond to God, okay? Um, In your own way, then that's you, okay? Um, So the first one, God's putting a burden on your heart for an area or a ministry of need. Second, is God's convicting your heart about a particular person you're biased towards or a group of people, Right? Can we stand and just sing the song in response? And as we stand, at any moment, you just want to respond by coming forward. We'll have leaders and the ministry team will come and just pray alongside you uh, in response to God. Yeah.